And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In Proverbs 22, and I'll just read verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. So today we wrap up two little birdies, and in light of the Christmas season where we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, I think it's appropriate that we're talking about raising biblical babies. Um, I do want to just give you kind of a little heads up. I got a touch of a stomach flu this morning, and so if I take off running, I'll try to turn off the microphone. Just pray for me and uh, wish me luck because this is nasty, whatever it is. All right, we're going to pray and we're going to get right to work. Uh, We have a lot of ground to cover this morning. And as Mike said, next week we'll begin a little three-part series entitled uh, Promise, Purpose, and Provision, laying out and mapping out where we want to go in 2013. Should be a really good year for us. And so let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you now for grace. Thank you that you sent your son to die for us. And thank you that because of Jesus Christ and his life, we are set free to live lives of joy in your presence. We invite you, Spirit, to be our teacher. And Lord, for the many young parents in this church, for the families, Lord, who are traveling, even right now, gathering with Grammys and Grampies and aunts and uncles, and for the families that are traveling here to be together, we pray in this Christmas season that there would just be a powerful outpouring of your Holy Spirit and a joyfulness and a peace. Lord, I do pray uh, over my tummy issues this morning. ask God that you just settle my guts and let me preach without distraction. Teach, Lord, for the well-being of your people. May we be deeply fed. And Father, for all of us who are parents, give us grace. There's so much that could come away from these sessions as burdens and condemnation. But Lord, let grace sustain us as we navigate the minefield of raising children for your glory. So speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So our last session, I'll quickly review. We laid out seven foundations for biblical parenting, and I'll run through those very quickly. Number one, God relates and exists as a father and son. He relates to himself, and he exists in a father-son relationship. This is the first foundation for biblical parenting. And I want to turn you to Tom Friedel. He's one of our leaders in the church. He wrote up a document that he taught at the jails. And I want to get that to you guys if you want to develop a further understanding of how God relates to himself as father and son and how that plays out in our fathering. Uh, I can email that to you. Second foundation for 
um, biblical parenting is God entered humanity as a baby. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. And so we can remember that God was a perfect baby in Jesus. God was a perfect baby or a perfect toddler in Jesus. God was a perfect teenager in Jesus. And so our Lord understands what it is to be a child. And he understands what it is to be parented. We can run to him for grace. We can pray and find mercy in our times of need. Number three, God reveals himself to us as father. And I emphasized this last week to biblically raise our babies. We must come to that submissive point of seeing our God as our daddy. I think for a lot of us, that's a struggle. I know it is for me. We've all got daddy issues. We've all got stuff going on. But he is firm and he is faithful. He is tough and he is tender. He is a perfect father. And from that foundation, we can father our children. Number four, fourth foundation that we talked about last week was it is God's will that man procreate and fill the earth. From the very beginning in Genesis 1, God desired. In fact, the very first command that God gives to his first human beings is go and procreate, go and fill the earth, go and subdue the earth. And so God is all about us having children and loving children. That's a great foundation to work from. Number five we see that the Bible calls children gifts, rewards, and blessings, not burdens, liabilities, or hindrances. And so when we begin to see our children as gifts and rewards from the Lord, blessings from the Lord, we father them, we parent them differently than when they are just problems to us, burdens, and hindrances. Number six, Jesus used children as the premier example of faith, innocence, simplicity, love, and life. They are little mini sermons unto us. This is such a wonderful foundation for parenting our children because now we begin to look to them and learn from them. What is it to be a son of faith? What is it to be a a child with unquestioning innocence and trust in our daddy? Well, look at your two-year-old. He's going to tell you what the heart of a Christian is to look like. And then finally, number seven foundation for parenting biblically is that our parenting reflects our father. We, in our parenting, are given the gift of experiencing that unconditional love as God the Father has unconditional love towards us and for us. We also last week hit the first of what I said was going to be seven instructions or seven principles for biblical parenting. I've distilled that down this week to only three more. But the first one that we hit last week was of utmost importance. We remember that for biblical parenting to remain biblical parenting, God has to remain God, not the child. And we talked about the idolatry of children and how very subtly children can take the place of God and our our money and our time and our calendars can be centered around a two-foot-tall human being that now determines our decisions and our emotional well-being and our financial budgets. Yes, things change with children, but Jesus needs to stay at the center to be biblically parenting those children. And we capped off last week with the only way to really raise biblical children is to sacrifice them. Oh, yes, sacrifice them. And we talked about Abraham, where Abraham was commanded by God to take his only son, his promised son Isaac... Not his only son, but his favorite son and sacrifice him in obedience to God and in lifting up his son and in placing his son on the altar. Abraham displayed an obedience, keeping God at the center of his home and not letting Isaac rule over his home. And God blessed him greatly. 
And for those of you that don't know the story, God went on to provide a sacrifice and did not require of Abraham the sacrifice of his son, which, of course, later reminds us of the true story of sacrifice where God the Father sent his son and his son was the lamb, the sacrifice for us. So with all that said, today we want to finish up this series with three more instructions on biblical parenting, three more instructions on biblical parenting Starting with biblical parenting is the parent's priority. Biblical parenting is the parent's priority. All parenting comes out of our father's heart and ways. And so to properly parent our children, to properly raise them, to properly train them, as we read Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This must be the parents themselves. It must be their priority. We live in what I call a handoff culture. Because of our busy schedules, because of our lifestyles, because some of us, I believe, struggle with sinful time management issues. We just can't get on top of our calendar. We can't get on top of our clock. For some of us, it's the sin of apathy or the sin of laziness. We tend to, we are always tempted to seek the most quick, the most convenient ways for all things. And whether we intentionally do this or not, we are tempted and sometimes fall prey to handing off the priority of parenting our children to somebody else. We will hand off the priority of training our children in the way that they should go to other people. We'll pass them off to their school teachers. We'll pass them off to the Sunday school volunteers. We'll pass them off to the pastors. For some, it's the daycare workers, and we'll entrust our children to the daycare workers, and we'll, we'll just hand off our priority, our responsibility, and being the primary trainers and shapers of our children. For some of us, and I'm guilty of this often, we, we hand off our responsibility to the television. I'll just let PBS and, and Curious George do the work that I should be doing. Now, hear me very clearly here. God has ordained you, if you are a parent of a baby, a toddler, or a teenager, you as a parent are the primary educator, primary protector, primary provider, primary shaper of that child in your home. It is your responsibility. It is your burden. It is God's grace that has given you that duty to delight in, particularly if you are the father. Yes, we live in a fatherless culture, but in the perfect plan of God, if it's being lived out according to what he wants for us, dad serves as the primary pastor of the home. He's the primary shepherd, the primary protector, the primary provider, the primary educator. Now, what I'm not saying here, I am not saying that we should pull our kids from schools and daycare and not put them in taproot kids. I'm not saying that we move off to the mountains as parents and live in some cave and homeschool and that way we're the only influence. And I think that that's a very unhealthy thing to do. And some parents do that in a knee-jerk reaction to the influences of this world. They they sequester themselves and they isolate themselves and they put themselves in this little kind of bubble and there they just get weirder and weirder and weirder till when they come out of the bubble uh, nobody knows what they're talking about what we find in 
training up children is that there is actually a team around us. There's a team of Sunday school teachers. There's a team of, of primary elementary student teachers in the, in the school systems. There's, there's teams of aunties and uncles and grammies and grampies and, and all of these wonderful influences. But for the parent, they are, those influences are all overseen and filtered by the father and by the mother. We are involved, we are in conversation, we are in continual connection with that child because that responsibility of shaping them, training them, and educating them is our personal priority and it is sin to be handing it off, to not be bearing that mantle of authority and responsibility. So this raises the question, how do I do that with my busy schedule? I'm a high-level professional. I work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. How do I stay involved in my child's life? And I think that in some ways we make a mountain out of a molehill when it comes to our priority of parenting. We think that we have to be giving these like theological dissertations on the gospel and on the Trinity to be training up our children in the way that they should go. When in actuality, there are very naturally set in rhythms and tools For training our children. I'll give you an example from the Old Testament. Moses was now taking his people into the promised land. And the law had been given. And Moses lays upon the fathers and the mothers of the people of Israel. The responsibility to train up their children. And he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. To properly make the training of your children your priority, dear beloved brothers, the commands and the word of God must first properly be the priority of your heart personally. If you're not in the Bible, if you're not in personal prayer, if the priority of your relationship with Jesus is not at the top of your list, then of course your training and the shepherding and the teaching and the guiding of your family is going to falter. So to be properly putting your parental responsibility as priority, you see here that Moses would command the men of Israel and the the women of Israel, let these commands be personally on your heart. And then he goes on and he lays out these natural rhythms for training our children. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. So when you're just sitting around watching TV, playing football, or watching the football game, just sitting around watching a movie. We love in our house whenever they're watching their little Disney princess movies or whatever, which are uh, just full of gospel opportunities to pause it and explain some facet of the movie and then explain how it either doesn't line up with the gospel or how it does line up with the gospel. When you're sitting around in your house, just in that regular rhythm of life, be teaching what God is teaching you in your heart. When you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. So when you're going grocery shopping, when you're in the car on your commute, when you're traveling to go see family at Christmas time, there's this ongoing rhythmic opportunity to be talking about who God is and what he's doing. And we don't have to make a mountain out of a molehill. Moses goes on and instructs the men and the women of Israel, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. To properly make parenting your children priority, there is this 
personal emphasis of growth in the Lord yourselves. There is this personal repentance of, I have allowed this handoff culture and this handoff mentality to excuse me not being the one that's training, shepherding, and educating my children. Now, there are other tools that God gives to us, and and I would say that this Sunday gathering and missional community are two of them. The Sunday gathering, this is a place where you guys can come and be trained. You can come and be taught the Bible. This isn't just for you to come and sit down and have your kind of spiritual feathers fluffed. Although there is going to be comforting, there is going to be conviction, there is going to be all of those things. But as parents of children of whatever age, when you come to Bible study on Sunday morning, come with a notepad in hand. And afterwards, especially if your children are of the age, ask questions. We are continually asking my kids. My three kids are in Taproot Kids right now. Right after the Sunday gathering, the first question they get asked, so what would you learn in Taproot Kids today? What did you guys do? Tell me how you learned. How did you worship? What did God speak to you? You use this as a tool for training your children. And if the Sunday mornings is what I call Bible talk, then missional community is Bible walk. Your whole family is involved in missional community where you're growing together with a family, where you're doing mission together, where you're serving. I I love it in our missional community this last year when we were serving our neighborhood and, and serving Julie next door, gutting her yard and cleaning it up. There were my three kids right alongside us, and they knew what they were doing was for Jesus. Just walking the Bible that has been talked on Sunday morning. Some other tools that come about that are very helpful, especially for little ones in developing nightly devotions and training your children. So for those of you that have babies, gentlemen, I would encourage you to pick up these books and and start early with them. The Jesus Storybook Bible, we started that with Sophia when she was just, you know, a little, little tiny thing. And uh, we've gone through like three of them. They're all just tattered. And my kids are getting old enough now that we've moved on from them. But the Jesus Storybook Bible at night, you can sit down. It takes five minutes to read. and, And those stories begin to get ingrained in your children's hearts and they see you as the primary pastors of the of their little souls we just found a new one for those of you that have older kids called the story of god for kids you can download it online for free the story of god for kids and it's wonderful it's this q a dialogue it's it's a synopsis of all the stories of the bible centered on christ and there's training tools with it gentlemen it's it's right there for you to download and every night you can sit down and spend 15 minutes with your family walking through the stories of the bible and the dialogue and the q a is fantastic Another one that we may be utilizing as a family this year is, is old school catechisms. In my studies for this and over the years, I've come back to the catechisms. Some of my favorite ones are Martin Luther's smaller catechism and his greater catechism. Luther was hardcore on training the family, big time. He was relentless. He, he wrote these catechisms because the families of his day had so failed in training up their children that he, he said to the men, here, I'll get a tool in your hand. I'll write out the very words you're to speak. I'll write out the very prayers you're to pray. And he was, he was hardcore about it. There's one point in his larger catechism where he's talking about making your children memorize the Lord's Prayer. And in that, he says, about memorizing the Lord's Prayer, he says to the men, these are the most necessary parts which one should first learn to repeat word for word and which our children should be accustomed to recite daily when they arise in the morning, when they sit down to their meals, and when they retire at night. So Luther says, you need your kids to memorize the Lord's Prayer. They need to say it in the morning. They need to say it before they eat. And they need to say it before they go to bed. And this is how hardcore he was. He says, and until they repeat them, they should not be given food or water. (laughs) 
Did you memorize your Bible verse today? No. Fine, go to bed. No food, no water for you. <laughs> oh, Martin Luther was something else. He was a, a, an amazing, crazy guy. Number three, and this kind of intentional rhythms of training our children, not making mountains out of molehills. Intentional time, families. In, in our crazy, hectic schedules and our handoff mentality, it's easy for us to prioritize our calendars around what we see as most important when God sees our children and our families as most important. Brothers, I know you are, and ladies, some of you are working high-level professional careers. You are, you are working long, extensive hours. But do not neglect this intentional time with your children. One of the most important times that you can have as a family is dinner time. Dinner time. And I don't care if it's a $5 pizza from Little Caesars. You're just sitting down, wiped out from the day, to have a meal together, to talk about your day, to be together. This is one of the most important places where discipleship, where training, where communication can happen for a family. Along with that, you can develop regular rhythms. So like for my kids on Wednesdays, Daddy Donut Day. And we go down there and Tim loads us up with maple bacon bars, which are absolutely worth every penny. And we have Daddy Donut Day and I take him to school. But that morning, you know, I'm just praying over him. We're having our donut time. We're not really talking about anything. We're talking about the weather. But some mornings, some real stuff comes up. Daddy-daughter dates. I started dating my daughters when they were very little. And now we look forward to those afternoons where we can go have tea. Sophia and I like to go have tea and sit there and read our nerd books. Nyla and I like to go to the art shop. And she likes to draw stuff and pick stuff out. Buddy days. Joby and I love to go down to the sound. And there's this great playground area down there with a, a helm, like a ship helm. And we play pirates and we do all that kind of fun stuff. And along with that, this year we're implementing something new. And I, I would highly encourage you guys to do this because it's been very great for us so far. Lengthy getaways with just your kids. doesn't have to be anything expensive. Uh, Joby and I just went on a buddy getaway where we spent two days in a cabin. We have some friends that let us use a cabin. We spent two days, just me and him, playing checkers and uh, watching movies. And man, his, his little love tank was just filled up so full. And we talked and, and it was wonderful. Nyla and I are, are uh, going to Leavenworth in January. We're going to go eat waffles and spend the night and just be together. Just to have those times. And, and so be thinking through just these regular rhythms. But for biblical parenting to be biblical parenting, take on that mantle of responsibility. Make it your priority. Number two. Second instruction this morning as we move on. Biblical parenting is discipleship. It is not a set of directives. There is a lot of literature out there right now, and there has been for a number of years, and it only continues to increase. Five steps to being a great parent. Seven steps to getting your kid to do what you want. That's basically what all of the parental language out there says. And what we're looking for in that, guys, is we're looking for that kind of quick fix convenience. We're looking for our seven steps that we can take to being great parents. And that's a good thing to look for. But listen, each of your children are like fingerprints. They are wholly and completely unique. Before I had kids, I was absolutely persuaded that the way a kid acted was based solely on its social influences. I thought that a kid was completely shaped, its personality, everything that it did was due to outside influences. Man, when I started having kids, all of that changed. Because all three of my kids are absolutely different. And they've all been influenced in the exact same way. Discipleship is life on life, rhythm, rhythm. 
time together. There's no real set agenda. There's really no set plan. There's a goal of creating and leading towards godliness, but discipleship doesn't come with it. This, this set of plans, like three steps to this and two steps to that. And biblical parenting is discipleship. Those are the primary little souls that you are teaching and training to be more like Jesus. So a couple thoughts on discipleship here that I think are important that maybe some of us are tempted to fall prey to. Discipleship is not vicarious fulfillment. What do I mean by that? I think sometimes for us as parents, we begin to look at our kids and we make the statement that, well, they will never do what I did or they will do what I never got to do. We'll look at our boys, gentlemen, and they will be the football player that I wasn't. We'll look at our girls and they will not be with the boy that I was. And we begin to, we begin to put together our plan of how we will live vicariously through them. And, and the dreams that we had and the desires that we had and the mistakes that we made, they surely will not. And rather than discipling their little personality, rather than framing out for the glory of God, how God has made them with their unique desires, we began to push upon them our desires, our goals, our purposes. And we began to crush and to squelch what God is wanting to develop there. Rather than tilling the garden, we we stamp it down. And so discipleship needs to be aware of that proclivity or that tendency to to put into our children our own purposes and our own dreams. Discipleship number two here is not concerned with outward appearances, but inward works of the heart. Discipleship is not outward, but inward. You guys won't know them unless you get to know them, but there's always a couple families. And you see the family and you say to yourself, wow. That's a Christian family right there. They come in and they have the the Christian smile on their face. And they have the the Christian Bibles in their hand. And the Christian kids are perfectly obedient to the Christian dad who who always has a song as he's singing. And and there's just this, this outward appearance of morality and perfection. But then in their hearts, there's actually this this distance from Jesus Christ. It's all this religious facade. But real vibrancy and real life in Christ is is supplanted. It is replaced by impressing people around them with their good religious ideals and their good religious activity. Discipleship could care less what anybody else thinks about us. (laughs) Discipleship gets right down to the guts of our hearts. Discipleship, really, to tell you the truth, gospel-led discipleship has nothing to hide. Gospel discipleship is not concerned about the way that we appear to certain people. You know, it used to be before I really began to understand this, that when somebody would come up to me and say, hey, I got to tell you something about Joby. I would just cringe like, oh, no, what are they going to say? What has my son done? It used to be that, you know, when my kids acted up in public, I would get extra angry. Why? Well, because that was messing with my appearance. That was messing with my ability to be the parent who had it all together. That was messing with the appearance that my kids are the good kids and my kids are always doing what's right and my kids are sin-free, right? Instead, we have to repent of this kind of myth of the Ward and June Cleaver thing. And what discipleship does is discipleship models brokenness and repentance, 
So from mom and dad, there is this willingness not to be afraid of what the culture around us says, not to be afraid of repenting before our children, that we fail our children, that that mom loses her temper, that dad can get short, not being afraid to discipline our children in public in the sense that we are still able to say, you know, with firm conviction rather than just letting them run us over because we're in a public place and we don't want to embarrass ourselves by saying stop, (laughs) saying stop. Discipleship is not concerned with this outward appearance. It is much more inwardly focused. Third thought here on discipleship as we move on. Discipleship is not behavior modification. It is gospel formation. It's not behavior modification. It is gospel formation. And I'm here to tell you that forming the gospel in a two-year-old is a lot harder than just modifying that two-year-old's behavior. Much of what we do in parenting is modifying the behavior We are laboring to get them to do what we want them to do, either for outward appearances or just for the sake of our own sanity, to the neglect of actually forming the gospel in their little tiny hearts. When it comes to discipling our children, we must understand that we cannot demand or shout or bribe or coerce or scare sin out of our children. (laughs) I think that sometimes we fall prey to that temptation to think if I just scream at them enough, if I just scare them enough, if I just beat them enough, they will finally have their behavior altered to where they will do what I want them to do. But in all of that, we're missing opportunity. When our children sin and we must be the parent who have the priority of shepherding them, the first place we have to take them to is an awareness of their sin and awareness of the forgiveness of Jesus. Yes, there's consequences for sin, as we're going to talk about here in just a moment. But primarily, purposefully, everything we do in our children is not first to modify their behavior. Before you go to discipline, before you get angry, before you start shouting, ask yourself, is my primary goal in this next action with my children, is it to modify their behavior or is it to begin to form the gospel in their hearts? And again, this is where... The responsibility has to be the personal belief in the gospel, the personal life in the gospel, so that that overflows your hearts and flows out to your children. A couple other thoughts here on discipleship, and we'll wrap up this point and move on. Discipleship leaves a legacy. Discipleship leaves a legacy. Because discipleship by nature is continually multiplying When a parent raises his or her son or daughter to the glory of God in a discipleship format, that son or daughter will go out and retrain their children and retrain their children and retrain their children in this likeness. And it's this ongoing multiplication. Ian, you can go to that next slide. What happens is generations begin to develop this kind of discipleship mentality rather than just the, the, the parenting mentality. So I'll give you, you know, from my own life, my dad is not a believer. My mom was not a believer uh, when I was growing up. My grandparents, as far as I know, are not believers. My great-grandparents, as far as I know, weren't believers. And uh, so I come from a long line where there was really no gospel centrality. There was no discipleship. There was just do what we do. We work hard. We yell. We we get out the belt when things go really bad. That's the way that it was for me. And I think that's the way it was for my dad and his dad. Uh, I had a great aunt that came to me one time and, and um, just began sharing with me that I had a great, great grandmother who began praying for the Braga men that there would be a Braga man who would rise up and serve the Lord. And 
with tears coming out of her eyes one day, I bumped into her somewhere back home. She said to me, Danny, you're the answer to that prayer. And I just realized in that moment, this discipleship thing is it's going to leave a legacy. There's going to be a legacy left as, as God now takes my line, the brag of men and frames my son in a different direction. There will be a legacy left. And then finally, before we get to this last point, discipleship does not save. Jesus does. Parents, it is so crucial to be biblical in your parenting that you remember you cannot force, coerce, shout, scare, manipulate salvation into your children. Salvation is a work of Jesus Christ alone. Only he and he alone can save your son or daughter. We've got to be faithful to model repentance, to model joy in the gospel. We need to be faithful to to teach our children the statutes and the the principles and the, the stories of the Bible. We need to be faithful not to modify their behavior first, but to always form them in the gospel. But it, it, it does not guarantee their salvation. This is why I pray daily over my children. Lord, be merciful with their hearts. Let's wrap this up here. We're going to talk about discipline now. Biblical parenting disciplines. So biblical parenting is the parent's priority. Biblical parenting is discipleship, not a set of directions. And then biblical parenting disciplines. Mike showed you guys those books. I cannot recommend this book enough. If you are a parent, you need to go to the bookstore right after this gathering and pick up Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. It is probably the single most well-written, biblically-centered book on raising children that I've ever read. And it is a gem. We based our parenting on Ted Tripp's work. Along with that, uh, Elise Fitzgerald, Give Them Grace, is just a great primer on raising children in the grace of the gospel and really letting kids be kids. So as we get into this section here on disciplining, know that there are resources out there that are biblically centered to really help us understand this. So as we talk about parental discipline of our children, we've got to recognize that our children are foolish sinners. I think for some of us, that's hard to hear. We look at that little tiny bundle of baby and, and there's just no way that there could be any sin in that thing till three o'clock in the morning and it's hungry, right? That is the perfect expression of selfishness right there. I'm going to take your sleep from you because I want what I want right now. And that only multiplies and grows exponentially uh, as they become teenagers, <laughs> as they move on in through life. Proverbs twenty two fifteen says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. You've got to recognize that to be a wise parent. Martin Luther said this again in one of his catechisms. I love this. He said, Jesus said that we must become as little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Dear God, this is too much. Have we got to become such idiots? <laughs> and so... The framework for discipline is recognizing that there is sin in our children and it is our primary responsibility to form the gospel and disciplining our children is part of the formation of that gospel that we are laboring to bring to light in their little minds that they have sinned. They have rebelled against mommy and daddy. They have rebelled against their creator who loves them. And then discipline can be put in its proper framework. Discipline is carried out because our father disciplines us. 
Some of you that are maybe new to the Bible or just getting to know this whole thing called Christianity, it is very clear in the scriptures that Jesus took our punishment, but there are repercussions and consequences for our sinful decisions. And our father, as we read in our section here before the study began in Hebrews chapter 12, he is faithful to carry out painful circumstances, painful situations. Even this morning, as I was praying over this belly issue that I'm having, I I was reminded that God disciplines us. I, I don't know if this sickness is a consequence of sin or something that I ate, but the truth is he's reminding me that because of my sin, my body is now fallible. It's, it's not going to go on forever. It gets sick. It falters. God disciplines the sons and daughters that he loves. And Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that if you are not undergoing discipline from your father, you're not actually his son. It's why I have such great concern for some who say they are Christians, but are living a life that is far from the fruitfulness that Christ calls them to. And they're not being disciplined. I will tell you that I think there are believers, confessed believers who say, I believe in Jesus, but the fruit of their life bears no lordship of Jesus, who will one day stand in front of Jesus saying, you let me get away with it. And that was his passive wrath. There are Christians out there right now, confessing Christians that are living in open rebellion and sin, who do not understand the gravity of, well, I'm getting away with it. That very may well be God saying, that's because you're not my daughter. You're not my son. Those are heavy truths for us to ponder. It is a good thing when we get busted for our sin, when the repercussions of our sin break us down, when depression hurts us, when frustration overcomes us, when our sin gets to us, that is our good dad taking care of us. Know this. An undisciplined child is a hated child. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. In our culture, there's this misnomer that to reprimand a child, to restrain a child, to require of a child obedience is a lack of love. And so in the name of love, let the child do as the child wills. And the Bible says this is completely the opposite. A child unrestrained and a child not required in obedience and submission to the parents is actually hated by those parents. To not discipline is to say, I hate you. And it goes even further than this, you guys. Discipline is a matter of heaven and hell. Proverbs 23, 14. If you strike him with the rod, says Proverbs, you will save his soul from shale. This matter of discipline is a, is a matter of heaven and hell. Framing out the, the law of God, the breaking of the law of God, and finding the forgiveness of God begins in a child's heart in the disciplinary process. And children left to themselves to go where they will, go after their sin wholeheartedly, further separating themselves from their father in heaven and damning themselves in hell. While parents in our culture in the name of love say, spank not, touch not, do not, leave alone, let them go. They are hated children. And so we have to check our hearts. We have to say, 
Have I been hating my son? Have I been hating my daughter by not establishing you know, requirements and establishing points of discipline for them? Because my father disciplines me. Now, let's get into some more details on this. When we discipline our children, it is out of a father's love. And so it is good for us to use the same language and restraints that our father uses. Guys, it is good to say to children, stop, do not, don't, and no. That is good. That is okay. Why? The top ten commandments are all no, don't, stop. Our father sets up for us no, no's, do nots, and stops. It is pure silliness for us to say we cannot restrain our children when our Father in heaven who is loving and gracious and merciful and pure and perfect says, no, don't, stop. And so in our parenting, pray fervently, gentlemen, sisters of Taproot Church, as mamas, pray fervently, what restraints am I not requiring of my son, of my daughter that my father requires of me? Where am I not setting up parameters? Where am I not setting up stops, do nots, don'ts, so that there can be these established boundaries and these rules and these not, and this is important, non-negotiable expectations. Beloved, I know that that two-year-old is a tyrant. Trust me, I've been through three of them. But you can set up non-negotiable expectations of that two-year-old. They are wicked smart. They are smart. And they know what you're saying. And they know what they're doing. And they know when the line is right here. And they know when they jump right over it. They are aware of that. And so there must be, as our Father does with us, establishment of boundaries, rules, non-negotiable expectations with the glorious words of stop, do not, and no. Now, here's where we get into some controversy. I'm more than willing to sit down and have coffee with you and talk through these things. Uh, Pop psychology is going to greatly disagree with me. Uh, Some of you are probably going to disagree with me. I'm just going to stick with the Bible so that it's not my words. It's his words. Discipline hurts. And we're going to talk about the use of the rod, particularly in young children. Spanking. Discipline hurts. Over and over and over through the book of Proverbs. We hear, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it from him. It's hard to do the gymnastics around the passages that bring up the rod to make the rod be anything but the rod. (laughs) It really is an implement of of discipline. And in our culture, there is a lot of, uh, of psychology and, and work being done that is trying to establish that spanking our children when they're little uh, ruins them for life. But the, the scriptures is clear. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. I've got a story for you. Sophia, when she was maybe two or three, it was one of those days with her where it was like every 15 minutes. Stop, do not know, swat. Stop, do not know, swat. Stop, do not know, swat, right? And it was just one of those seasons where it was like every 15 minutes, back to the room, share the gospel with her, explain sin to her, swat her, send her on her way with a hug and a kiss. I love you. Well, later that afternoon, I wasn't there, but my wife told me this. Later that afternoon, she's having a great afternoon, right? After this long morning of consistent swats. And she comes walking into, walking into, the kitchen she's all happy and chipper and she says boy mom those swats sure did make me good huh (laughs) 
swats are not going to kill our children. And, you know, God specifically made two little targets with a lot of little cushion on there. And it's just like, it's just perfect the way that God has set this up. Now, on using the rod, I would highly encourage you to pick up Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. There's a lot of detailed information that we don't have time to get into in here today. Uh, I'm more than willing to sit down with you parents and walk through our philosophy on raising our children in the use of the rod. For those of you that are in great disagreement with me right now, uh, God bless you. And I'm willing to sit down with you and and read all of your psychological reports that you're going to give to me. And I'm just going to take you back to the scriptures here. I'm also going to take you to, honestly, I'm going to take you to your kids and my kids. I'm just going to say it. I, I am. I'm going I'm to say, I want to look at the fruit of what actually happens in children's lives that are not disciplined. When it comes to the rod, uh, my wife and I have found that an implement of discipline is greatly used in their lives and not our hand. Uh, my hands for my children are hands to hold them, hands to Nyla loves me to trace her little face. When they see daddy's hands, they see safety, they see protection, they see strength, they see firmness. When they see an implement, for us, it's a wood spoon. I can turn you guys on to where to get these things. They're great. (laughs) It's a wood spoon. It's not too heavy. It's not too small. It's just right. It's shaped just perfectly for that little set of buns right there. I feel like I'm enjoying this too much. Am I enjoying this too much? (laughs) When they see the spoon in daddy's hand, they know that that hand is a hand of love and that the implement is a tool that daddy uses to train them to love them. Discipline with the rod is not used to shame, to embarrass, or to create a fear of abandonment. Um, I I will tell you, and and this is something that I would exhort you parents to repent of if you do this. Um, You're standing in the grocery store. uh, The two-year-old has plopped down on the floor and is doing his thing. And I see this all the time. Okay, I'm leaving you. See ya. And that little two-year-old's eyes get about this big, and she loses it. She lo- she's horrified that her parents are going to leave her there. Yes, there's a fear tactic in that. Yes, you are, in some sense, disciplining. But the text would say, don't create this sense of abandonment. Your father would never abandon you. Your father, rather, would take control of your sin, pick up your little sinful butt, take you to the bathroom, and spank your little sinful butt so that you know who's boss. You wouldn't be abandoned. You would be shepherded by. Abuse in discipline often happens as well when we are trying to shame and embarrass our children. For us in our home, we don't spank in front of the other kids. We go off to the room alone. And there we don't shame them. We don't pile upon them their guilt and their shame and you this and you that. We explain their sin. We have them confess their sin. There's care and caress. There's self-control in all of that. And by the way, we are not perfect at this. Please, for the love of God, I'm not setting myself up as an example here. I got a bad temper, especially with my kids. But laboring not to shame or embarrass and abandon them. But the rod becomes that tool. The rod becomes that source of of real discipline. Discipline as well with the rod needs to be consistent, not explosive or capricious. Consistency. And I'll tell you this, guys. Biblical parenting that disciplines is hard work. The reason a lot of us don't discipline our kids is because we're lazy and it's inconvenient. It's so much easier for me to sit there with the remote in my hand watching the game, and they're just bringing all hell down in the living room and just say, shut up, be quiet. I can just sit there and yell. 
And then finally they push me over the edge where it's like, now I'm going to unload on you because I'm angry. Rather than consistently setting up, here's the non-negotiables. In my home, you act this way. In my home, you talk to me this way. In my home, you do this and you don't do that. When I say do this, don't do that. And when you don't do this, you don't do that. You do talk to me this way. Here is the immediate controlled, gentle, but firm discipline. And we have found seasons in our lives as a family, my wife and I, where when we fall off the discipline wagon, so to speak, we get lazy, we get apathetic. It's like, man, this is like the 800th time this week that I'm going to go through disciplining him for the same thing. I don't want to do this again. When you fall off of that, we'll see kind of like a, like a, a wave rising in the ocean and it gets worse and worse and worse. But to bring that wave down and bring the seas back to calm, there's got to be that consistency. So establishing what are these things that we'll discipline for being consistent in that. In our house, I'll just give you our three Ds. Danger, disobedience, and disrespect. Those are all immediate swats. Danger. It's a non-negotiable. You put yourself in danger. Daddy, I didn't know. Tears are streaming. Fine, you didn't know. Grace. The next time that same instance happens and there's danger... The child puts himself in danger and they knew not to do that. That is an immediate swat. Um, disobedience, that, that just goes with, I said no. And this is the thing, guys, with consistency, no doesn't mean no. And then the child goes, no. And you get a little bit louder, no. And the child, what the child do is, is doing there is that little two-foot human being has just trained the six-foot-tall human being how, how loud to yell to get reaction, <laughs> Rather than the two-foot-tall human being recognizing that when daddy says very calmly with self-control and poise, no, son. <laughs> and what follows, that, what follows that first no isn't another no, son. And what follows that next no isn't you better not, son. No, what follows that first no is discipline. Your sons and your daughters uh, begin to learn, and this is a great failing of mine. I confess it to you as my family. This is an area where I need to continue to work at the consistency. That first shot of disobedience is no. So danger, disobedience, and disrespect. In my house, personally, it is our conviction that our children, regardless of how mad they are, regardless of how much they disagree with us, they speak politely and they speak respectfully. And that doesn't only go for my wife and I. That goes for you guys as elders. My little dude, my little boy, man, he, he's, he's, he's a tough nut. And I need to know if he starts speaking to any one of you out of line. He knows that he needs to be submissive and respectful. And I would say even for those of you that have two-year-olds, where two-year-olds want to take you, the one to two-year-old, they, you know, they get fisty with you and they start throwing punches. This is a non-negotiable disrespect of the authority in the home. What you're establishing there in that child's heart is that I can disrespect and do what I want with authority, including God's authority. We are training into our children the authority through discipline, and it is a matter of, of heaven and hell. Discipline with the rod never takes place in anger, impatience, nor with self-control, without self-control. And this is why. What pop psychologists are describing over here and what they're afraid of with spanking is abuse. And it's clear over here. 
This is the angry man who loses it, creates fear in his children, slams down on them. There's no self-control. There's yelling. There's no explanation of the gospel. There's, here's my, this is what I was raised with. When I, when my brother and I finally pushed my dad, we'd hear the belt unbuckling and we knew run for the hills. Get out of the way because this is going to be bad. There was no gentleness. There was no, there was just rage, right? This is what cannot happen. Then this is why psychologists in our culture says spanking is dangerous. It is in this format. But if you walk it all the way over here where God's grace and his prayer and the spirit is at work in a parent who's able to count to 10. Sometimes you got to count to 100 before you send them back to the room and you count to 1,000 if you have to. And you pray. Then you can go back and you can sit down with that child and you can begin to walk them through their sin. Then when you put them over your lap and you swat them. The next thing after that is you're now holding them closely and you're reminding them your father loves you. Your daddy loves you. I accept you. I forgive you. Jesus accepts you. Jesus forgives you. You'll never be abandoned. You can ask all three of my children, why do we get swats? Because dad loves us. Because we explain that this is out of love. That we do this for you because our daddy loves us. And so discipline with the rod, it is of vital importance that it does not take place in anger and patience. Discipline with the rod, we're almost done. Points to Jesus as the answer. And so we don't frame discipline in our house as punishment. We don't say you're being punished. We say to our children, Jesus Christ was punished for you. He was punished for you. And so there are consequences to your sin because he wants you to come close to that truth. I can remember one time Sophia was in trouble and I was trying to explain the gospel to her. And I said, okay, honey, I'm going to explain the gospel to you. And she's bawling. And I'm like, here, what Jesus did for us is he took our spanking. She stops crying. She's looking at me with a cocked eyebrow. And I say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this spoon. And because you sinned, because you disobeyed, I want you to spank dad. And she, she's like, what? And so it just completely overwhelmed her. And now, I mean, for, for the next few times after that, she's like, can I spank you? Instead of me getting a spanking. <laughs> the other big thing with our kids is showing them grace. You deserve a spanking right now, but I'm going to show grace. And so every time, please show grace. <laughs> All discipline takes place at the foot of the cross. And so discipline takes place in the format of, honey, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ took your punishment here. Because he loves you, this sin will separate you from him. So he'll give you the consequence of your sin, which is a little bit of pain. You know, 20 seconds of sting on your little rear end so that you can come to him and repent and trust and walk with him. Discipline takes place at the foot of the cross. Final closing thoughts on discipline and we'll wrap this up. Discipline cannot divide parentally. You as parents need to sit down. There is nothing worse than mom saying, swat him now. And dad saying, ah, not a big deal. Don't do that. Fake it till you make it. If you're in disagreement on how you should be disciplining your kids, don't disagree in front of them. Don't pit mom and dad against each other. In my house, it's been hinted at times that daddy's the grace guy. You know, I'm always the one giving grace. I can't stand that idea. I want to be the tyrant. I want to be the one that's like, and so we need to get on the same page as parents and discipline cannot divide us. You need to have your set of kind of standards. That was SWAT worthy. That was SWAT worthy. That wasn't SWAT worthy. And have that even sit down and write it out and pray through it. Discipline during danger, disobedience, and disrespect. Discipline so that kids can be kids, so that they can have safe parameters. And then finally, as we wrap this up right now, 
Hear this from your father on these three points. We do this because God made you his priority. You are Christ's priority. Your heart, your hurts, your fears. God made you his priority. And in sending his son, as we celebrate this Christmas season, he proved his love for us. He proved his commitment to us. He proved that he was willing to give up everything for us and make us, our salvation, his priority. God is committed to discipling us. For those of you right now that are just feeling overwhelmed and, 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 oh my gosh, I did this and I did that. And oh no here and oh no there. Listen, run to Jesus. All of these gracious words of correction or rebuke are designed to comfort you, to turn you to Jesus who says, you are my priority. I parented perfectly. I was a perfect child for your son or daughter And I know how to lead you in your parenting. And so he's committed to developing you as a disciple. And then finally, just sit under God's discipline. God disciplines us. But we are not being punished when pain comes into our lives. Rather, Jesus Christ was punished in our place. He lived perfectly. He died for us. And so any pain that you're experiencing this morning is pain designed to return you to him, to rest in him, to rejoice in him. Here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to do a little Q and a to wrap up our sessions. And so we can ask if you have any questions, there's been some questions that have been emailed in to me. Um, and I can ask those questions. Uh, but if you have any questions as it pertains to anything that we've talked about over these last weeks, and we've talked about a lot, um, this series has been super effective and kind of uprooting a lot of stuff that was going on. I think that there's a lot of good counseling going on. I think there's a lot of good ministry happening within the missional communities, So I'll ask a couple of these questions that have been emailed to me and and just give my answer. Um, As well, Pastor Jim and Pastor Mike can speak in if if something comes up in your hearts. And then if you're you're thinking of a question, um, let's just field a couple questions here and then we'll we'll sing some songs and and go about our day uh, getting ready to celebrate Christmas. One brother wrote in to me, he said, you know, last week we talked about miscarriages. And we talked, I don't think I mentioned abortions, but... um, The brother wrote in, he said, you know, as you were talking about miscarriages in particular, uh, my wife has had at least three, possibly four miscarriages. And I suddenly was just overwhelmed with this sense of my children. Those were my children. And I I miss them and I want to see them. And um, his question to me was, in one sense, uh, well, his question was, was literally, will I be reunited with my family? And in one sense, I would say yes. For those that have miscarried babies, um, I am of the persuasion, I'm, I'm persuaded that life begins at conception, that that was a life that God created, had a personality, a soul, wanted it to live, um, and the curse, and for whatever reason in his sovereignty, it didn't. And so I am fully persuaded that when this father steps through heaven's gates, there's going to be uh, three, three sons and daughters of his. Will they be adults? Will they be babies? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that there was life there that God made and he counts precious and will redeem. He is just and good. Now, in that sense, you won't be restored to those sons and daughters like you would here. You'll be in the heavenly realm where you're, you're no longer married. Um, you'll know each other. I, I'll know my kids that they were my kids, but we will all be the children of the father in, in the heavenly realm. 
Um, so yes, I do believe that there will be reuniting. For those that have um, had abortions, just the, the tragedy of abortion, there can be such guilt and such shame. You know, come to the cross of Jesus today. And I have told women in my past counseling sessions, you know, you will see uh, that baby. You'll, you'll see him. You'll see her. You'll meet them. Uh, there'll be no tears there. You won't regret. You won't. I shouldn't have. It, it will be over in the kingdom. And so uh, you will meet that baby and, and see that baby. There's biblical precedent for that. This kind of links into this next question that was asked. Um, does the Bible refer to when a fetus takes on human life in a soul? Boy, the Bible is not a, uh, a biology book. It's really not. It's not a science text. The Bible is a theology book. We don't have a lot of answers. I personally, at this stage in the game, am very, very reticent to say that two divided cells is anything less than conception of human life. There are probably those of you in here that are more well-trained than I in biology and, and the nature of all of these things. But the simplistic biblical answer, Psalm 139, is that God knit us in our mother's womb. And I think that that starts at the beginning of conception. At least at this point, I'm persuaded of that. I don't see a way around that. I'm very nervous to even slide towards saying, yeah, the soul enters the fetus at, you know, zygote stage or when there's two little arm buds, um, you know, you cannot, I don't think we can meta, I don't think we can know that we're dealing in the realm of the spirit now. And, and so I would say that the soul enters in at the point of conception. Um, we see in, in John the Baptist, Elizabeth is approaching Mary and, and, uh, he's a baby in the womb and he knows that he is standing in front of the mother of the savior and he leaps, he leaps in the womb. We're told in the text. Um, I, I can tell you the first time I saw Sophia, she was like, I just called her like a little loogie. She looked like a little tiny loogie. And I was staring at the screen. Like, it just looks like a booger. What is that thing? And all of a sudden it like shaked around. I could see her two little arm buds and her two little legs. And I thought, Oh my gosh, that's my daughter. Ugly little booger, but it's my daughter. <laughs> there was life there. There was life there. So I think for those of us on the, on the, uh, in the abortion discussions, I err on the, on the side of great conservatism, great priority of life. Uh, I believe that those are souls that are created. Two souls divided or two cells divided uh, is the beginning of life. And, and God wants that life to go on and proliferate. And then the final question that was emailed to me, and then I'll field a couple of questions if you guys would like, um, was, is it okay for birth control? Because last week we talked about the priority of having babies. This is a very important discussion to be had, particularly for young couples. The Bible is silent on birth control. It doesn't give to us a chapter and verse, yes, use birth control. No, don't use birth control. There's some really kind of abstract scenes. Uh, there's this dude, Onan, who is supposed to uh, fertilize his brother's wife. It's this Old Testament thing, hard to explain right now. And he doesn't. He gets in big trouble for it. Such big trouble uh, that God kills him. Uh, you don't want to use those kind of texts to build a theology of contraception on, that's for sure. So... Um, So because the Bible is silent, when the Bible is silent, we employ biblical wisdom and prudence. And because the Bible is silent, there's not a nay or a yay. Each couple must determine by prayer what is our responsibility for raising children. 
Um, I have friends in Acts 29, uh, Eric Van Patten, they've got like 12 kids and they just keep on plowing on through. And he's a great guy, but he just doesn't think that having that many kids is a big deal. In our society, that is greatly shunned upon. Um, Because contraception is not mentioned, you need to pray about how many children you want to have and you're not in sin. Um, There are all sorts of modes of contraception that the Bible doesn't speak to that God is just fine with. The key with contraception is that you are asking yourself, why are we not having children? And if your foundation is because they're a hindrance, they're going to cost us a lot of money. We just want to do our own thing. Eh, I think you should step back from that and really start praying about using contraception. If you're praying, you know what? We need to get our budget in order. I'd like to grow a little bit more in my ability to lead my wife so that I can lead my children. Man, that's prudence. You're just preparing to have children. Um, The one other thing that I would say is final forms of contraception, uh, tube tying and vasectomies. Boy, pray about that for a long time. You know, you guys are my family. I know some of you guys are visiting, but I'm pretty transparent. Uh, I had a vasectomy. We have three kids. Joby was a train wreck of a birth. He was born early. He cost, he cost us a ton of money. And I was completely overwhelmed. My wife was emotionally overwhelmed. And we were both like, we are never doing this ever again. And so I went and had that done. And I, and I can tell you, now my son is five. And, and all of you guys are coming in here with all your little babies. And I love your little babies. And I do. I find myself saying, was there one or two or... Four more? I don't know. (laughs) Just pray fervently before you make a a final decision like that. Yes, those things can be reversed, but like a tattoo, they're kind of hard to get rid of. And uh, the success rate of reversals um, on those types of situations is is not very good. So that answers some of the questions that were emailed to me. Do you guys have any other questions before we go to song? Anything that's kind of drifting around in your hearts? um, Feel free to ask it. And if not... We will uh, we'll jump to song here. Hope to see all of you for our Christmas Eve gathering tomorrow night where we're going to just celebrate Jesus. They won't let us light candles in here, so bring your cell phones and we'll just glow our cell phones. Any questions? Doug? Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Yeah, we do use a lot of Christianese. So Doug asks, what does it mean to form the gospel? The way I think of forming the gospel is every time, and I'm just, again, I'm a failed example at this, um, and Jesus didn't have any kids, so we can't look to him, and we don't have the writings of what the Paul and, and Peter and all those guys were doing with their kids, but the way that we frame this is when we sit down with our children, we begin with the gospel. So the gospel begins really with our God who loves us, and it frames out in questions. Do you understand that you're loved? Do you understand that you're accepted? Do you understand that there's nothing you can do to either make you right with God or more wrong. You'll never be more loved by God or by me than you are right now. So you establish unconditionality. And you do that. I mean, doing this with a two-year-old is, if you brothers can get the gospel to a two-year-old, you should be up here preaching the gospel because it is a challenge. Um, Then we move on to, okay, what was the sin? And the gospel requires confession of sin, recognition of sin. Don't let them skirt around. Well, she did this, so I did that. You know, the finger pointing thing. No, what was your sin? What was your disobedience or your disrespect or the danger you put yourself in? I want you to confess that. I want you to, and we use biblical words like confess and love and uh, repentance. You need to repent. You need to turn from this sin. Then we talk about the consequence of sin, which is the SWAT. That's the bending over, 
get the SWAT. Depending on the infraction, um, <laughs> that's the big deal with Joby. How many SWATs am I going to get? We've just got to the point of saying, I'm not going to tell you. Um, then there's the SWAT. And after that is the real gospel formation. Because in that moment of pain, and I'll tell you guys this, this is how the Father works with us. When you're blubbering your eyes out because life just hurts so bad, but you're sitting on your daddy's lap and he's holding you, that's the gospel. So there have been times, unbeknownst to my children, where they're crying in my neck and I'm just crying. I'm just crying, not because I had to inflict pain on them, but because my father is holding me as I hold my daughter, hold my son. And you just know that you're loved, that he didn't abandon you. He was willing to to spank your butt, so to speak, it hurts because he loves you. So as you're holding your son, your daughter, you're, you're speaking to them. You are forgiven. You're accepted. You're loved. You don't let them leave until they know, till they reiterate to you. Yes, dad, I'm accepted. Sometimes it just gets obnoxious with me because I want them to understand so badly. Yes, dad, I know you love me. Yes, dad, I know I'm accepted. And, uh, and they don't die. So you have this gospel formation. And I say formation because it starts at a very young age. It starts with the best place to start it is the reaching thing. A lot of you ladies have the, the little guys that are starting to, you know, grab forks and huck them across the restaurant right there. That's just, you know, at that point we were still using two fingers, tap them on the hand, set up a boundary. No. And you should see the shock, shock on their face the first time they get their little hand tapped. But you're establishing these boundaries where there's consequences for sin and you're forming that all the way through their teen years course the teen years the rod becomes uh no cell phone um you know you don't get the keys to the car you get to hang out with your dad all night tonight all those kind of things which i can't wait for that it's gonna be awesome did you say you're going on a date great what movie are we gonna go see it's gonna be awesome uh okay any other questions here i really do pray for us church that we have a good christmas season I really do. Um, there's some work that God wants to do in us in 2013. I'll be very frank. 2012 has been one hell of a year. It really has. We have seen some good stuff, and we've seen some really rough stuff this year. And God has been good in all of it. And so I'm praying for us as a church that as we move into 20, 2013, like the Apostle Paul, this is where we're going next Sunday, we count all of the past as just a big pile of dung. All of our sin is forgiven. All of our mistakes are forgotten and forgiven. All of our good things we did, great. They were good, but they're gone. We press on towards the goal for which God has called us. The promise of eternal life, you guys. This Christmas, tomorrow night and Christmas morning, when you're thinking about that little tiny baby, that is life eternal. When you're thinking about that baby becoming a man, that is life eternal. You are going to live forever in righteousness and joy and peace. And I pray that it just consumes your families and you press on towards that goal. So with that said, let's all stand and we're going to sing to Jesus to close our day. This has been a great series. I have thoroughly enjoyed teaching it. Let me pray for us. Father, as we close our Sunday in worship, may you make much of yourself in the families of Taproot Church and the fathers and the daughters the sons and the mothers, the Grammys, the Grampies, the aunts, the uncles. You love every one of us uniquely and carefully and perfectly. And you discipline us. Some of us this morning are under a, a severe hand of chastisement because we are no bastards. We are born again, filled with your spirit, and you bear witness with us that we are indeed children of God. 
I'm going to continue to just pray for piles of babies, Lord. There's so many new babies in this church, so many young couples that are being blessed with little rewards. For those that are struggling with infertility today, Father, comfort their hearts. For those that have miscarried and possibly aborted babies, remind them, set joy in their hearts that they will see those babies again alive eternally. And Father, in this coming season for us, you love our church. We are a unique fingerprint. You haven't abandoned us. You haven't left us nor forsaken us, and you never will. I pray for every one of us that we would set our hearts through 2013 to pursue the goal for which you have saved us. There's not a one in here whose life you would see wasted. You've gifted, you've taught, you've trained, and now you send by your spirit. And so we want to worship you in fullness of spirit and joy. Fill our hearts with your grace today as we exalt you and as we love you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.